Welcome to Obsessed with Design, a show about what makes designers tick. My name's Josh Miles. I'm a principal and brand strategist at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located in beautiful downtown Indianapolis. Today on Obsessed with Design, I chat with designer, founder, speaker, and startup investor, Christian Anderson. This talk's a little different from usual in that one, we had a chance to record face-to-face at our friend Doug Carr's studio in Indianapolis. He runs a company called DK New Media and an amazing site called The Marketing Tech Blog. And unsurprisingly, he also hosts a podcast called The Marketing Tech Podcast. Definitely check those out. Doug is not sponsoring today's show, but we'd love to give him a huge thank you for allowing us to work into his busy podcast schedule. Also today, the conversation is remarkably different than a lot of our other interviews. Christian and I talk a lot about how his design firm launched a startup studio and get deep into conversations about startups. Even if you're not in the startup world, I think you're really going to enjoy some of his perspectives. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with my friend Christian Anderson. All right, guys, welcome all the way from one floor above us, designer, investor, speaker, and founder slash co-founder of many things, including High Alpha, Studio Science, which was formerly KA plus A, Tinderbox, which is now Octave, Gravity Ventures, Path Agility, Visible.vc, Lessonly, IndieMade, Structural, Xylo, Doxley, and Clear Scholar. Holy crap. Please welcome Christian Anderson. Uh, it was interesting how many of those were formerly known as. It means I'm probably not very good at, at naming businesses the first go around, but it's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Josh. Yeah, I think that uh, that list has grown by quite a few just since I've bumped into you in the elevator recently. So <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe uh, fill me in. I mean, we'll get into to what High Alpha is about a little bit more, but um, that alone is sort of birthing companies uh, all the time. So what, what's kind of the pace in which you guys plan to keep releasing new entities? Yeah. So, uh, the plan is for us to go through a process really on a quarterly basis where we, uh, conceive of an idea and try to push it to a point where we can develop a reasonable level of confidence around the idea that we'll start a company. And so we do that we actually do that through a formal process four times a year. Now, certainly not all of those turn into businesses, um, but we're on track uh, right now to launch two or three net new businesses every 12 months. That's awesome. Well, I want to come back and spend a lot of time on the, the high alpha concept, but, but maybe before we get too far, I always like to ask our guests what their origin story was. Like, How, how did you find yourself into this, this world of design in the first place? Yeah, I, w- I was, um, <clears throat> depends on how far back you want to go, but, you know, one of the things that I've always felt really uh, fortunate about is the fact that I've known pretty much exactly what I wanted to do with my life from the time that I was really kind of really young. I, I mean, six or seven I wouldn't have had the right vocabulary to talk about it at mm-hmm. that point. Like when I was seven, I probably just called it like advertising or something like that. Right. But from the time I was a little kid, uh, and, and you know, if, if if my 
parents, Gary and Annabelle, were sitting here, they would attest to this. I knew that I wanted to be in design, kind of the commercial aspects of design. And I mean, this was reflected even in like what my Christmas list looked like, you know, when other kids were... <laughs> you know, asking for rector sets and, and stuff like that. I was, I was asking for, you know, T squares and, 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 and Prismacolor permanent marker sets. And, you know, even, even as a little kid, we would travel, we would go to places like New York or Los Angeles. And, um, again, like, I think a normal thing would be like, Hey, let's go to the natural history museum or the comic book store. And when I was a kid, um, you know, there were a couple of big commercial, like graphic design stores, but they were only in big cities. Mm, mm-hmm. you know, there, there were some in New York, and anyway, uh, and that that was always my request. We would like land at LaGuardia, and I'd be like, "Can we go to the graphic arts store?" So uh, <laughs> I knew from a pretty early age that I was interested in design and commercial design and graphic design, and I went. That's what I went to school for, and uh, graduated with a BA in visual design from Anderson University, and. Um, my very first job out of school was in the kind of, I guess it was 96, was with a company called Intermark, which uh, was one of the very first waves of kind of internet-enabled businesses. It was very sexy, Josh. It was, <laughs> it was internet-connected uh, touch screen kiosks. Mm-hmm. And so it was this company that we would put these big powder-coated metal kiosks like in gas stations uh, and people could order stuff off of them. And we had all these fantastic um, business partnerships with companies like the Sharper Image, which sounds cool, but it turns out that people who are stopping in for like a can of Skoll and a peach knee-high are not interested <laughs> in ordering $400 phones from the Sharper Image. So the company didn't, didn't last that long. But so six months into my first job, I was out of a job. That was and, before we did buyer personas, right? <laughs> yeah, there were no buyer personas. Yeah, and my job was like UX designer. And I remember I showed up the first day. They didn't call it UX. I don't know what they called it, like screen designer or something. But <laughs> Graphics guy. And it was, they had me at a Micron workstation with Corel Draw. So those were the tools at my disposal. Amazing. Um, and uh, But yeah, so anyway, I did that. And six months later, I didn't have a job. And I'd actually accepted a role with a... A large digital agency in Manhattan. And I went in to tell my former boss about it. And he gave me this very interesting kind of pep talk about how in life you're either fulfilling your own dreams or helping somebody else fulfill theirs and how I should hang out my own shingle. And, and long story short, that's what I did. And, and basically ran around for a few years as a glorified freelancer and, um, and happy to double click into this but I don't want to bore your guests. Long story short is that freelance gig turned into kind of hiring uh, a first uh, associate and then a second and then an eighth and then a 16th and then a 30th. And, and it went from there. And uh, I spent, you know, 12 or 13 years building what would be really kind of the definition of a boutique design agency, one that was very focused on serving software and technology clients. And, and that's what I did up until we found at High Alpha. So that was uh, originally Christian Anderson and Associates. Was that the original name? Well, it's, I don't think we have to get into original names, Josh. <laughs> okay. the, the, I, I was laughing earlier in the intro about uh, how bad, you know, for a guy who ran uh, what at least in part was a branding agency for many years, how terrible I obviously am at branding. I think the first variation was Viking Design. Mm-hmm. Um 
That's pretty embarrassing. You should see those business cards. <laughs> I would like to. Uh, which then turned into Christian Anderson New Media Group, which then morphed into Christian Anderson Plus Associates, mm-hmm. which then became KA Plus A, and then finally Studio Science. So I, I, I struggled with like eponymous naming. You know, I had mm-hmm. it in my head. My dad was an architect and interior designer, and his firm was... His name was Garrig Anderson, and his firm was called Garrig Anderson Plus Associates. And I thought, well, obviously, that's how you do it. Exactly. And uh, apparently, that is how you do it if you're going to be kind of the guy for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. If you're not going to be the guy for the rest of your life, it's actually a terrible strategy. <laughs> right. uh, and it took me took me a while to figure that out. But yeah, it's kind of become a joke that we change names every two or three years to keep everybody <laughs> on their toes. Whether you need to or not. Yeah, Just, exactly. You know, keep it fresh. We think Studio Science may stick, though. That's a pretty cool name. Excellent. Well... I mean, as, as you alluded to me a little bit before we started rolling here, your day-to-day involvement with studio science is really different than it was, obviously, in the, in the founding days. So what's, what's kind of your high-level involvement, and how do you still keep in touch with what, what that group's up to? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, studio science is, is a really interesting business in that uh, there's a... There's like a fax machine going off in the next one. <laughs> this is a very high-tech room. There's yeah, lots of technology whirling and clicking. Um, <clears throat> so, we, you know, it started life as a traditional design firm, but one of the things that, and I'm going to go like off script for a second. Yeah, is that okay? Okay. That, that I think was interesting about the business and certainly caused some pain for me, but in the long run, I learned a lot from and, and has really informed my current kind of vocation and profession is that running a professional services firm is hard work and it really doesn't matter if it's like a two person like accounting shop or 300 person agency it's a it's kind of a tough road to hoe and one of the i don't know if this is frustrating but one of the realities of that business is that services firms scale in a very particular kind of additional way if you want to grow that business you you have to add bodies i mean certainly you mm-hmm. can increase your rates I mean, those are really the two levers at your disposal. Increase your rates and then add more units of production. And and it's, especially when you're working in a firm that's servicing lots of product-oriented companies, you're kind of like looking over the fence going, wow, look at that. That that business scales even when they're sleeping. They don't have to hire people to scale. And, uh, you know, how neat is that? That the, the kind of incremental cost for creating a new unit of value is like zero when you're selling software, mm-hmm. right? And so we begin to think very critically about how could you scale a services firm the way you scale a product firm, specifically from a revenue perspective. And, and that led us to what really is pretty popular or pretty in vogue in, in 2017 back in 2007, was not quite as in vogue, was to begin... Um, partnering with organizations uh, in, in an attempt to own equity in our customers and our customers' products, products we were designing. And so we began doing that kind of in the, I don't know, around 2007 probably. And, you know, they say, you know, it's better to be lucky than smart or whatever. So a couple of those deals ended up being like good deals, not life-changing deals, but deals mm-hmm. that kind of uh, affirmed our thesis yeah. That this was that this was cool, and and so through that, um, I personally developed a level of, if not fluency, at least I became conversant in the language of early stage finance. And because there's a lot of stuff you've got to figure out if you're going to, you know, for all the designers out there that are thinking about taking equity in 
in their customers' companies, there's a lot of nuance that matters there that makes the difference between that being a really bad deal for an mm -hmm. agency and a really good deal. Um, and again, happy to to dig into any of those nuances if they're of interest. But uh, so I kind of got this rudimentary education in that, and that led me to um, to angel investing. So okay, now I know a little. Like now I know enough to be dangerous, mm -hmm. right? So. Other folks are coming to me saying, hey, you know, you did this deal with these guys. Would you be interested in investing? And so I began to, to angel invest, but really kind of off of the studio science platform. Uh, and then that in turn led to me co-founding a, a venture fund called Gravity Ventures. Uh, and that was really built, again, on top of a design firm, right? Mm -hmm. So we were using the resources of the design firm to help manage it. We were using our network at the design firm to help de deliver deal flow. Um, and, and through that process, uh, we were very prolific seed stage investors. We did uh, over 40 investments in a relatively short period of time. Ultimately, that's what led us to the decision that, hey, partnering with customers is really cool. Uh, investing in customers is really cool. What if we, uh, you know, the, the old, what if we became the customer, yeah, right? So right. what if we um, really kind of practice entrepreneurship off the platform of a design firm? And that's when we began to launch companies uh, in partnership with other individuals or other entities out of the design firm. And, and that's when I really got the kind of entrepreneurial bug. And that's why I, I tell you, that's why I realized the difference between being a small business person and being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Because up until that point, like I was a total small business person, which I happen to love and still think is like one of the surest ways to deliver on the American dream, you know. But there is like in, in my mind, there is a distinction between those two things. And I was not necessarily prepared for how big the gap was expectation-wise between uh, being kind of a small business person and being an entrepreneur. What do you think defines that gap? Like what's, what are the primary differences in your mind? Yeah, I, I you know, def I could define it or I could illustrate it. Uh, I find illustration to be a little bit easier. Um, you know, a small business person owns a Subway franchise. The entrepreneur mm -hmm. owns 50. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just about scale. It's about what your job is. A small business person is typically engaged in the delivery of the product or service that their mm -hmm. business is famous for. And an entrepreneur tends to spend more time kind of bringing, uh, kind of meeting demand by bringing capital and resources to bear. So they are typically, their role is typically more of orchestrator. And their role, the, entre the role of the entrepreneur is one of the only roles that changes so dramatically while still being purely an entrepreneur, your role inside of that business changes so dramatically on day one to month 12 to, to year mm -hmm. 10 in a way that if you own a car repair shop, you know, your role on the day you open that is pretty similar to your role in that, you know, 10 years later. Right. Um, yeah, so it is, it is, it's, it's, and again, it's kind of a nuanced difference in terms of vocabulary, but it is a huge difference functionally in terms of what you do when you get out of bed in the morning. So maybe we can back up half a step here and talk about what is high alpha exactly? And what are you guys, what are you guys doing over there? What's, what's kind of the, the, the vision? Yeah, so that's good. Yeah, that's good. So 
how's this for a segue, right? So yeah, we, right. Um, so I stepped away from Studio Science about a year and a half ago after going through that process of design firm, taking equity investment, starting to angel invest, launching a seed stage fund, and then beginning to launch companies out of the design firm. And really the next evolution of that was High Alpha. And, and so I stepped away from Studio Science about a year and a half ago and left it in the very capable hands of really, actually the very first person I hired 13 years ago, Nathan Sensabaugh, who's now president of that company and doing a remarkable job of continuing to grow it. And and I left to found High Alpha with three partners, all three of which were folks that worked for Salesforce uh, here in Indianapolis. Um, Mike Fitzgerald, who uh, was in corporate development, Eric Tobias, who had built and sold a company to, to Salesforce, formerly known as Exact Target. Um, and then Scott Dorsey, uh, who was the CEO of Exact Target, and then subsequently of the of the Salesforce Marketing Cloud, and all three of those gentlemen were kind of rolling out of their uh, obligation uh, mm-hmm. to Salesforce and had begun to think about what was next, uh, as human beings are prone to do during times of change, and. Uh, and we really just, we had all known each other. We had all worked together and uh, all had acknowledged that really the most gratifying part of our, of our day jobs were, was working with entrepreneurs and helping uh, bring ideas to fruition. And so we began to think about uh, what a business would look like if it was very intentionally designed around those goals. And, and what we settled on was this, what we think of as really a new model for entrepreneurship, which is high alpha, which which marries up an emergent type of business called a startup studio, mm-hmm. which, which is really a company that just starts companies. Uh, and there's a handful of uh, really high-performance startup studios around the country, some, some that your listeners may be familiar with. In New York, there's one called Betaworks, um, which, is, which is well-known. They bought Dig kind of out of bankruptcy mm-hmm. and revitalized that. Um, they were early investor in Twitter. They, if you've ever played the iOS game Dots, Dots yeah. came out of there. Jiffy came out of there. Really neat. They had um, their own uh, podcast for a little while too. Well, there you called, go. Called I mean, The Intern. Like, like all the cool kids. Yeah. There's a startup studio in uh, LA called Science Inc., which is also a really cool model. There, If any of, you, uh, any of your listeners heard about the billion-dollar acquisition of Dollar Shave Club a few months ago, Dollar Shave Club was a Science Inc. joint. Mm. And, and a handful of others. So Startup Studio is kind of a new, a relatively new construct, but it's a company that starts companies. Um, and, and so we, th- we thought that's what we wanted to do. And in the process of kind of designing that business, we really stumbled upon what we think is an even better model, which is combining a startup studio with a venture fund. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to kind of start these companies and to thinly capitalize them and build management teams and hit the ground running. Ultimately, all these companies face a very similar set of rev-limiting challenges Mm -hmm. um, around recruiting, around product development, around finance, uh, certainly around funding. And so we thought, what if we could solve for a lot, not certainly not all, but what if we could solve for a lot of these rev-limiters? You know, what would that look like? And and in terms of like product and engineering and design and finance, that, that's mostly around expertise. So you, can you build a team of people who've been there and done that, who know where the speed bumps are, who know where the potholes are, mm-hmm. and who can go fast? And I'll get back to why going, why I believe going fast is so important in this context. Yeah. 
But the one thing that personnel alone won't solve for is the funding piece. And if you talk to entrepreneurs, um, specifically first-time entrepreneurs, what you'll find is that, you know, they hooked up with somebody, they developed a pretty gnarly idea, they built a product, they got some customers, things are clicking along. And then they're like, man, if we just had half a million dollars, if we just had $2 million, we could, we could really scale this and really figure out go to market. And then, and then they'll tell you how they like basically had to take six months off while they went around like trying to raise money. And it's, and it's just, it's hugely inefficient. And in startup land, momentum is incredibly important. So if you're off to the races and in the middle of that, you're like, hey, you know what? I'm going to take half a year off and go see if I can figure out how to finance this. That can be really problematic. So, so our, our kind of answer to that was, let's bolt a venture fund onto this. So instead of us coming up with great ideas, building a product, getting some customers, and then trying to figure out financing, what if we raised all the money first and then set out to do those other things, right? Mm -hmm. So we didn't have to take that three to six months off and we could really put the hammer down. And, and uh, you know, to me, that was kind of the big innovation. Now, as I like to say, check back with me in five or six years and I'll tell you if any of this mattered or not. But <laughs> at this juncture, we think that it's it's making a big difference. So, so High Alpha in summation is a startup studio uh, and a venture fund kind of conjoined uh, on on day one, and and we think it's given us really tremendous competitive advantage. That's incredible. So, what does a normal day look like for you? I mean, and maybe there's not such a thing as a normal day with all these different things moving around. But do you guys have like each of the co-founders have kind of swim lanes that you stick within, or are you guys kind of bopping around in between different roles? And how's that how's that work out for you guys? Yeah, we were a year and a half into it, and I would say that. As of about six months ago, we really did settle into swim lanes, to use your language. Um, the first year, I didn't even live in the same city as my co-founders. So I was living a very pastoral existence yeah. in <laughs> rural Arkansas, and I was commuting to Indianapolis every other week for a week at a time. But six months ago, my wife and my children, we moved um, back to Indy after being gone for seven years. And... That was really tremendous. It allowed me to plug into the business at a level that I had not been able to historically. Um, and around that same time, uh, and I, you know, I don't know if that was catalytic or just coincidental, but the the four partners really began to settle into their groove in terms of um, not just what they're responsible for, but where their most meaningful contributions originate mm -hmm. from. And so we we spend a fair amount of time constantly trying to make sure that we as individuals are are focused on flexing our superpower muscles because there's a lot of stuff you get sucked into that's basically just lifting with your back you know stuff that you can do right. that you might even feel obligated to do but it's certainly not the highest and best use of your time and so and that can be for someone who has a bias toward like self-deprecation or or humility even, not saying that I suffer from that particular malady, but it can be very <laughs> difficult to think about what am I best in the world at and how right. do I say no to everything else mm -hmm. but focus on that? And, um, and we're, we're, we try to be very intentional about that. So yeah, I would say all four of us basically crudely kind of slot into a different kind of gestation stage of a business. I'm very mm. focused on the very, very beginning. Yeah. So... Um, working our new idea pipeline, uh, running a process uh, we utilize called Sprint Week, where we actually kind of codify and 
and advance these ideas. And as you move to the kind of to the right, every one of my partners has a has a superpower, and they're all excellent at many many things, um, but extraordinarily excellent at at very specific things. Uh, my partner Eric is really great at kind of go to market and turning a like a, a business that's just barely standing on its, on its own two feet into something that's viable. Getting those first customers, advancing the product. Um, my partner Mike is extraordinary at operationalizing uh, and at finance. So when that those companies now kind of have their first few customers, the product is stable, and we're beginning to turn our attention to capitalizing the business. Mike mm-hmm. tends to plug in um, in a host of other areas, and then my partner Scott is, uh, you know, the air is very thin up there in terms of people who have served as CEO of a, a hundred dollar a year company all the way to a company that you know, a public company that exits for, you know, a few billion dollars. So that superpower of CEO coaching and scale, how do you scale? There's a lot of people that know how to get to a million and there's a decent sized group of folks that can get to 10. The group that can get to a hundred and then to a billion, it, it's a much, mm-hmm. much, much smaller cohort of folks. Um, and so it's, it's neat to have people on the team and certainly people on the team that transcend the partners. We have a remarkable leadership team as well. Um, that have kind of seen that movie before. So really High Alpha's role is to um, kind of create, spin up these these different entities from idea all the way out to they're actually making money and having paying customers. And so you and your partners are not serving as CEO and director of operations for these businesses probably long after they're birthed. It's, yeah, not long after. No. Sort of kick them out of the nest and... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, like we're opportunistic. So uh, as a general rule, we are, cons- we are like literally like coming up with the idea, mm-hmm. building the product, getting on planes, selling the first customers, you know, we're, we're doing the work. With that being said, the, the most successful businesses that we're involved in have uh, passionate, dedicated uh, leadership. And so we endeavor, you know, if we do, if we can only get one thing right, it would be uh, our ability to recruit and cultivate world-class leadership. And I would say that's an area where we have probably outperformed um, in that our portfolio companies have, rem- we have remarkable co-founders and re- we've been fortunate enough to hook up with remarkable entrepreneurs who are taking these ideas and turning them into real world businesses. And in some cases, these entrepreneurs have come to us and said, man, do I have an idea? Yeah. And we've said, well, let's party, you know, let's figure right. out how to turn this into a business. That's cool. I was, I was curious if, um, if that ever might happen in the future, but it sounds like that's already taking place that not, not all of these are solely, you know, ideas that came from. No. And I mean, cause that's the, the idea part's easy. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I don't say that I, I don't intend to come across as like an elitist or just kind of like Bay area talking head, kind of like ideas are cheap executions, all that matters. You know, people say that a lot, but it's true. Like I, I like, you know, I, I like to say that I've never met anyone that didn't have at least $100 million idea mm-hmm. rattling around in their brain. I mean, they just do. I'm, you know, it's a fact The the, you know, the only thing that matters is, you know, a word we've been trying to pronounce correctly for the last few months around the office is the word indefatigability. <laughs> I think I said it right, you know, but it's basically like indomitability. Mm-hmm. It is like 
it is uh, like the character trait that prevents you from lying down after you've been pushed down. And, you know, good ideas in a vacuum are worthless. I would also argue that, you know, execution uh, without a big idea is not terribly valuable <laughs> either. Um, but the, the the key is to have both. And so we prioritize bringing remarkable executors into the fold really above everything else. So after some of these um, entities are launched, does the High Alpha Venture Fund continue to support them through so many years or cycles? Or do they then have to go do their own searching for a a next series uh, investment? Yeah, that's a good question. So the way it's, uh, just to sketch it out for your listeners, and I know it's hard to follow this without any kind of visual aids, but you know, High Alpha will run through a very compressed ideation cycle called Sprint Week. At the end of that Sprint Week, we will look at three or four ideas and kind of weigh the merits of proceeding with one or more of those businesses Immediately following Sprint Week, we will make a determination to fund uh, one of those businesses. We typically put about a half a million dollars into that business from Jump Street. Uh, and we'll spend the next six months, usually in partnership with a co-founder, with an entrepreneur mm-hmm. that has kind of joined High Alpha. And uh, the High Alpha platform will essentially build and operate that business. So we have... Uh, extraordinary team of uh, uh, about 20 kind of senior leaders with lots of SaaS and B2B software experience, um, a very robust design competency. We have five designers on staff. Now, if you know much about venture funds, it's been all the rage as of late to add designers uh, to venture funds. Pound for pound in terms of assets under management, <laughs> without question, we employ more designers than any other venture fund uh, <laughs> in the country. So we are heavily biased toward design. And so we will design product, uh, engineer product, uh, build financial models, recruit. We have a very robust recruiting competency headed uh, by our, our VP of talent, MT Ray. And, and just Roll up, just dig ditches, just get in there alongside the entrepreneur and his team and build the business. At the t- at the point where they raise their first round of external financing, mm-hmm. so you might call that a series seed, um, at that point, High Alpha Capital will make an investment along with some external funders. And our role will shift to the studio's role at that point will shift into something that's more advisory in nature. So typically we're occupying a couple of board seats. We're still very, very engaged, um, but it, it certainly looks different than when it's still in the nest as a studio company. And we're, you know, we're getting out of bed every morning, again, going on sales calls, building product, actively recruiting, things of that nature. Sure. Well, I want to go back to something you touched on in particular around talent, you know, for, for those of our listeners who've are not familiar with all the things that are happening in Indianapolis. We've got some amazing stuff going on and probably more talent here than, than people would expect. Um, but I am curious, like as you create another one of these babies over and over and over again, at, at some level, you're almost competing with yourself for the same talent. So um, I guess, how do you guys talk about that internally? And do you, do you see yourself uh, piping in more talent or do you feel like the, the talent pool here is, is strong? And I guess talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole other, this would probably be only of 
significant interest to your listeners that are in this geo, but we could do a whole podcast on on why Indy is such a great place to build a software company. There is, uh, so will you let me kind of just tee off in general yeah, for a minute? absolutely. Okay. So there's just, uh, there's an arbitrage opportunity in Indianapolis around talent, and it's not unique to Indianapolis. It exists in other cities as well, but it doesn't exist at this scale in that many other cities. Um, and, uh, you know, like any other type of investing, you're looking for arbitrage. You're looking for where there's a big spread between the buy and the sell. And there is, uh, I would say, a disproportionate <clears throat> amount of expertise, doers, middle management, and leadership in uh, software in Indianapolis, thanks to really uh, a series of very fortuitous uh, and slightly coincidental events. I mean, you got to understand in the early 2000s, three companies all started within a very short period of time from one another in the city, coincidentally. Angie's List, Exact Target, and Aprimo. All three of those companies grew at a, a really rapid clips. It, many cities would have been tickled pink to have one of those mm -hmm. companies emerge and grow and become a, a billion dollar enterprise. In Indy, we had three, and it all happened simultaneously, and it created this kind of cyclonic environment where we were sucking talent in from other geos where and giving uh, our own kind of talented sons and daughters a, a reason to stick around yeah. um and and for years indy was really the only uh, one of if not the only midwestern city rust belt city that showed a a um net increase uh what they call a a, a net let's say i think they call it net population, net migration increase, which is basically people voting with their feet, people moving to the city. Um, and so we built this really neat platform of talent in the city and rode that uh, all the way through the early, you know, 2012, 2013, when we started seeing exits and consolidation amongst some of the larger companies. And what happened at that point, uh, Angie's List goes public, Exact Target goes public, then gets bought by Salesforce, a primo uh, gets purchased by Teradata. You had enormous amounts of wealth being recycled into the environment because I'll, I'll tell you, if you want to know who invests in like highly speculative, high-risk tech companies, it's people who've worked at and made a lot of money at highly speculative, high-risk technology companies, yeah. right? You need that type, that very specific type of money recirculating. Even more important though, is you have this kind of, I don't know, like disenfranchised middle management. So you have these people that have learned an awful lot, have become experts in their field. And now they're like, I don't know, they're they're stuck in kind of a more bound job. You know, a company has mm -hmm. been purchased a couple of times. It's now big co, uh, some of the excitement's gone. And and what do those people do? Well, they want to, they want to, uh, they want to go on the ride again. Right. Um, oftentimes as founders or as if they were a director of marketing, now it's time to be VP or maybe even CMO. And, and it was a timing deal. We had a lot of that happening in a very truncated period of time and you know, thousands of highly educated, very, very specifically educated, very mm -hmm. specifically skilled software developers, marketers, designers, salespeople um, and that was part of the reason we decided to do high alpha when we did it and where we did it was that we thought there was an arbitrage opportunity around talent. Now, to your point, ultimately, 
uh, if we're successful, we will be a victim of our own success and we will create a market. And then listen, we're not the only people that are hip to this, right? I mean, sales, yeah. this is Salesforce's second largest office in the world. Mm-hmm. And they're going to hire almost another thousand people here over the next couple of years. Oracle has an office here. Or Marsis moved their North American headquarters here. Aperio moved their headquarters from San Francisco to Indianapolis. Return Path opens an office. You know, Lots of people on the coast get this and they're opening offices here and, and taking advantage of this. And again, not unique to Indianapolis, but it's it's indicative of of what's happening. So to answer your question, uh, at this point, we have not um, run into issues where we are competing with ourselves. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talent here and uh, a lot and, and a high alpha. We're creating opportunity for that talent, but we're just still just a small piece of that equation. There's lots of opportunity for those folks. I will tell you, though, that there are areas where we are really strong and there are areas where we're not as strong and we're having to turn our attention um, more forcefully to recruiting even outside of this geo, which is good. Again, you can't become world-class by just kind of creating opportunities for your own people. Yep. You have to create an environment that is so target rich, that is so oppor- uh, opportunity rich that um, that people vote with their feet, that people come here from other places. And that is like one of the most exciting things to me is to be uh, at a dinner party or what have you and meet somebody who just moved from Portland or just yeah. moved from, you know, blah, 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 Boulder, Austin, you know, whatever the, <laughs> wherever the cool kids are. And, and, you know, I, that used to happen w- once a quarter and now it happens every day. And it's really gratifying to see, see it take, take shape. Yeah. It's interesting too, how, um, how much momentum there was just in the, in the business to business software as a service world here. So that, that attraction in particular. So obviously the sexiest of all of the technology right. all verticals. Of the sexy stuff. Yes. That's right. Um, so works out nicely for you guys, especially with some of those big boys drawn in thousands over the next few years. You know, one or two of those might might jump off of the big co bus and make their way up to high alpha. That's that's part of the plan. And the and the lesson here for like regardless of where you're listening from, this is true, like whether you're in Tampa, Florida, or Topeka, Kansas, these same di- opportunities and dynamics exist for, uh, you know, I, I hate to call them second-tier cities, but, you know, these cities with half a million to two million, you know, folks in the population that are kind of constantly in a subservient position to the Bay Area or New York or, or even Chicago, um, there there is a playbook here that can be run over and over and over. And it's about creating opportunity, creating the context for businesses to flourish and creating a place where people want to live. And I mean, the good news is, is 20 years ago, people, young, bright, ambitious folks for the most part were always headed to the coasts and, uh, or, or some variation of that. If they were on a little farm in West Texas, they were headed to San Antonio, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's changing. I think people are developing a deep, a, a very rich appreciation for local and for history and for tradition and from where, from whence they came, as they say. And it's created really unique opportunities for cities like Kansas City and St. Louis and Indianapolis and Cincinnati. Whereas 20 years ago, uh, it really wouldn't have mattered how many dog parks and art galleries were within walking distance of your condo. Um, you know, today people are looking for reasons to be in these cities. And I mean, it's a great time to, 
it's a great time to be building a business in, in those types of markets. So if I'm a young designer thinking about there's this thing that I want to make, I want to make a product and whether it's a physical product or software company or high growth or small scale, um, what would you, what would be your advice to, to that listener? You know, what they're, there's trying to figure out the timing. They're trying to figure out what exactly do I make? You know, what, what's that first lever that you would encourage that they pull? That's a good question. Every there, there's there's these kind of sets of very polarizing uh, opinions and sets of advice that people give, right? So you've got like the Jason Fried school of mm-hmm. how designers should start a business, and it's all about starting very small and keeping your day job and working nights and weekends and validating your concept and not getting hung up on the need to go too fast or raise money and and. And I think that is like 110% accurate advice in many cases. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and the flip side is burn the ships. You only live once. Let's pour some gasoline on this sucker and go, right? Mm-hmm. Quit your day job. Beg, borrow, and steal. Call your old college roommate and your father-in-law. And, you know, let's go raise some money and let's go fast. And I think roughly 110% of the time, that is also absolutely true, depending on circumstances, right? <laughs> so, and the circumstances are, who are we dealing with here? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, psychographically, you know, are we dealing with a small business person or are we dealing with somebody who has an entrepreneurial temperament? Yep. Um, what kind of product and or service are we talking about delivering? Are we talking about uh, delivering software in, emer- in an emergent, hotly contested space? Well, I'm going to give you one set of advice that's going to be very different than if we're talking about uh, starting a t-shirt printing company, right? Or a food truck, right? So, so like be very, very wary of any kind of universal advice around advice. I mean, you know, insert like designer, young person, college graduate, you know, that's interested in starting a business because you really kind of got to know, you got to be a good Georgia horse, uh, be a, a good judge of horse flesh in determining um, what direction to point them. And, and you need to have a pretty decent understanding of what type of product they're wanting to build and what type of market they're wanting to attack. Uh, so, but that's kind of a non-answer and probably frustrating to anyone who's listening. So I'll put, <laughs> let me put a finer point on it. Because my world, I'm, my worldview is pretty myopic because I live in software. I live in kind of cloud computing, blah, blah, blah land. So let's talk about that. Sure. Let's say I got an idea for, you know, the quintessential, I got an idea for an app, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, in that case, I would say, all right, let's start with what's your ambition, okay? Is your ambition, I've got an idea for a, a mobile dog walking app, and if I could figure out how to build a incremental revenue stream that allow me to only work four days a week instead of five, I give you this set of, of advice. And, and that would largely be driven not by your idea, but rather by the fact that your ambition is an ancillary revenue stream that will allow you to work less. That tells yep. me a lot about, not nothing bad, just kind of who I'm dealing with. Right. Um, the flip side of that is, hey, I've got an idea that's going to disrupt you know, Salesforce or Oracle or, or what have you. What I would tell you is, is that in in the building of, uh, in the pursuit of value, building value in your business, time or or more specifically speed is incredibly important. So 
Josh, if you and I went and started a software company tomorrow, you got an idea? You got any ideas? All right. So we'll just call it- 100 of them. What, what did you call it? 100 of them. Okay, 100 of them. All right. So we'll pick <laughs> one of those. And let's say that you and I spend the next three years building it. And in 36 months from now, we're generating a million dollars in recurring revenue from this product, which I think we'd both be like delighted about, it's right? All right. Gross margins and SaaS are really good. And so, you know, assuming we've got the expense line under control, that's that's a very cool business. And and we could go like raise money to continue to grow that. We could potentially sell it. Um, and that company would be worth X, right? So it took us three years to get to a million in revenue. And as a result of that, that company is worth X. And I'll make up a, a value for X. Let's call it $5 million. Sure. Let's say in three years, I'm going to get five times top line revenue, which is not an outrageous figure at all. Probably in line with norm. All right. So let's say you and I go build that same company. All right. But we get to a million revenue in 12 months, not 36. That company is worth Y. Okay. And Y is not, the delta there is not three. Okay. The delta there could be as much as like 10. Okay. So meaning if I can get to a million in revenue in a year, that company might be worth $15 million. Okay, might be worth $20 million. Speed matters because in SaaS, if you look at kind of the valuation of both private and public companies, one of the most important drivers of that is uh, the velocity of revenue growth. So how quickly you can grow revenue. So there are certain businesses that my advice to you is drop everything, burn the ships, um, you know, tell your friends, you'll check in with them in a couple of years and get busy. And there are other businesses that sit at the intersection of a different set of ambitions uh, where I would absolutely tell you to take the to take the slow boat and enjoy life and let's build something durable, but let's build it incrementally over time. I think that's good. So it's not so much about universal advice for for a founder. It's it's more uh, I guess almost introspective. I mean, think about, you know, to me, like these businesses are ch- are like children we, I, I, and it's pejorative and slightly insulting to even say that. But the reality is that's how I think of them. I think of them as my children. And um, I- You have lots of those too. I have lots of those too, exactly. <laughs> and I can't, and and yeah, and that's my, contr- that's kind of like my control group for what's happening in my professional life. I have six kids, 12 and under, and there's not a one of them that I can deal with the same way. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and even in terms of like the advice I dispense in general, like the platform advice in terms of like uh, morality and street smarts and, uh, you know, like high level directional advice about how to live your life. That's all very similar. <laughs> but in terms of, hey, should I play football? You know, I, I, that's I'm not going to give you the same answer or. <laughs> Or, you know, when are you old enough to read the first Harry Potter book? Well, it depends, you know? <laughs> uh, and it's the same thing with entrepreneurs and the businesses they're running. It is. It sounds like a cop-out to say it depends, but doggone it, it just depends. What do you think is the biggest misconception about the startup world? Hmm. Um, boy, there's so many, Josh. Uh, there's so many. Again, maybe focusing this on, on your world and B2B SaaS. I'll, t- I'll tell you, I don't know if it's a misconception, but I'll tell you a truth that I don't think is broadly understood. Mm, good. Which is this thing called the power law. 
You ever heard of this? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the, the way the patent, I'll, you know, for the economists and folks who study this, I'm going to get some angry emails. You're going to get some angry emails about how I <laughs> articulated this. But the layperson's version is the power law dictates or states that whoever comes in first place, basically the returns that that generates or the enterprise value created by the, by the winner will be greater than, will equal to or greater than the returns generated by all the other entrants. So number two, number three, number four, number five, number six. Yep. And the returns or the enterprise value created by number two, the second place person, entity, will be equal to or greater than the returns generated by all of the other entrants combined, right? And, and what that basically means is building a business specifically in tech, it, 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 it is kind of a zero-sum game, right? And being number one is incredibly important in terms of building enterprise value, right? There's room for two and there's room for three, and those will create big, meaningful exits for the people who build those companies. Being number seven is a terrible place to be, right? Now, this is not true for small business, right? right. right? You could be the seventh most trafficked restaurant in Indianapolis, and you could be just, you know, laughing all the way to the bank, right? But in software, this power law is incredibly important. And this goes back to, to why, you know, the tech world gets maligned a lot. It's very in vogue now to talk about this focus on speed and growth at all costs and and raising all this money and 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 so on and so forth. And there's certainly lots of bad actors and lots of nefarious activities and people behaving just generally poorly. But the, the truth that undergirds a lot of those decisions uh, is, is kind of pointed in the right direction, right? Which is trying to help these companies kind of dominate markets, get very big very quickly uh, because, of, because of this power loss. So when I visit with entrepreneurs who are going after hotly contested markets in hot spaces, and they don't seem particularly concerned with getting there first, that, that's worrisome to me because regardless of what you, you, know, you, you, you think about the ethics of that, the reality bears out that the people who wind up in first place, the vast, vast majority of the reward goes goes to those people. And it just doesn't work that way in other industries. So I don't know that we've had enough time for this to to bear out in all the emerging markets and new new categories, but you know, especially if we look at the the social space of, you know, MySpace was number one for five minutes and then then Facebook and then who's who's <laughs> next. And yes. so I'm curious how that power law plays out over time as, you know, will it be Will Facebook be able to hold that number one spot yeah. long enough? And, and you know, no, because there's always a new new thing. But that's okay because all of the majority of the kind of well, of the reward has already been distributed. Yeah, I mean, you look at Facebook's market cap, and I'm not saying Facebook's market cap won't continue to grow, but they clearly won, right? Yep. So there was Facebook, the then today. there was MySpace, and there was Friendster, and, but they clearly won. And, and the power laws absolutely applies, right? What's the number two social network? And the number three, and the number four, and number five, and number six, and number seven, add up all their values, and they still do not equal the first place entrant, right? Mm -hmm. But what happens is there's always, not only is there a new thing, there's always a new, new thing. So uh, this too shall pass, 
right? I mean, <laughs> and, 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 and it's interesting. You look at the five most valuable tech companies by market cap today. Who are they? And I'm not, and again, for those of you who are actually like on wallstreetjournal.com right now checking this out, <laughs> who knows if we'll get this right. But certainly the most, the most influential and, and slash most valuable, Apple, Amazon, mm-hmm. Google, probably still Microsoft. Who am I missing? Facebook. Facebook, yeah. right, of course, Facebook. Yeah. All right, now, who were the five most valuable tech companies a decade ago? How many of those people were on that list? Right. One. Yeah. Microsoft. Mm-hmm. The other four, maybe 10 years ago, maybe Apple, but probably not. Okay. Right. Um, and if you go 10 years before that, you know, you got telecom. Yeah, yeah, totally you, you used to have, you, you know, 10 years ago was Intel and Oracle and mm-hmm. Microsoft and SAP, and right? And then 10 years before that, it was AT&T and you know, whatever, right. it was the telecoms and, and 10 years before that, it was, it. yeah, IBM. And then, and then it was the steel guys and right. So there's always an disruption happening at the industry level. Like what industry is the most important? What industry is shaping cultures, driving the economy? And then inside of those industries like tech, and we may be at the terminus, right? I mean, tech is going to be the industry driving change for the foreseeable future. Right now, the layer on top of tech that's driving a lot of this are the social platforms, right? Mm-hmm. So um, not the hardware guys as much, but the social platform folks like Facebook and, and you know, you don't think of Google as a social platform, but they are for sure. Um, my opinion is that the next 10 years, it's still going to be built on top of tech, but it's not going to be social platforms. It's going to be some of the buzzwords you've heard are there are going to be new companies that emerge, new machine learning companies that emerge, for example, that have will have an opportunity to absolutely blow up Google's money machine yeah. and to absolutely blow up Facebook's advertising model. I mean, the only thing for sure is that that's going to happen. Death taxes hey. and those guys are going to get blown up. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll, um, as sort of a series of questions to wrap up here, tell me about, uh, you know, getting back to some more personal stuff. Tell me about what you think is your proudest moment so far at, at High Alpha. You know, in fairness, Josh sent over a couple of like thought starter questions and I looked at them and I tried not to think about them too much because there's nothing worse than like a manufactured answer, right? In this context. <laughs> so I wanted it, I wanted it to be. Um, kind of as off the cuff as possible. You can do the, oh, let me think about that. Oh, wait, I just had this yeah, idea. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I, I would say um, there's been a lot. And some of them are like so selfish that I would be embarrassed to mention them on your podcast. So, you know, just like so like this made me feel really good, but I don't, I don't know, maybe too personal. Um, I would say in general, if you look back at the dent we've put in the market from an employment perspective. So how many people have careers that they love? I mean, that's, that's a hard one to top. I mean, yeah. if you've, you've been a business owner for a long time, Josh, you know what it's like when you're, when someone has worked for you and then they've gone on to do something even, I mean, frankly, like better, like even better, right? Yeah. E- either surpassing you and what you've accomplished or, or something that, you know, clearly was the next step in their kind of uh, evolution or maturation. I mean, that is like deeply gratifying. Like if you like building leaders, if you like investing in people, I don't think that there's 
any part of um, my career that I have found to be more, uh, more gratifying than to see people that have worked with me uh, move on to, I mean, frankly, to bigger and better things. And I think we've done a good job of that. Just in a year and a half, we've built a platform that's created a lot of opportunity for that. I mean, you literally have a platform that's creating that thing for them to move on to. So yeah, that's so exactly that right. It's pretty cool. It's pretty trippy <laughs> when you think of it that way. Yeah. Yep. Did you have any design heroes kind of as you were coming up in the design world or anybody in particular, whether it's a, a firm or a person that you, you really look up to these days? Well, as I was coming up or that I look up to these days? Either one. I mean. Okay. Yeah. So I had a, you know, I had the benefit of growing up in a family where my dad was a designer. So that's kind of, again, that's kind of like a wah, wah, oh, my dad, you know, kind of answer. But seriously, it would be my dad. Uh, he was my kind of business mentor and my design mentor. And as I was, you know, I was, I was born in New York City, but I was raised in rural Arkansas and, uh, and loved that and took, took to all things like Southern, like a pig to mud, um, even the colloquialisms I use, like pig to mud. <laughs> and uh, something about a horse horse meat i don't know what horse meat. we're gonna have to maybe know. link out to some of these phrases in the show notes but but oh horse flesh horse, flesh, yes, horse flesh. yes yes um but my dad took it upon himself you know while my mom was teaching me how to shoot a gun throw a knuckleball uh my dad took it upon himself to make sure that i stayed really connected to and developed a deep appreciation for all things beautiful uh in design in particular and rather it was the stuff that was nearest and dearest to his heart like architecture um, or fine art, even fashion. I mean, I was exposed to all of that at an early age. Um, <clears throat> you know, that I got a whole, I'm sure I have a very big therapy bill in my future as a result <laughs> of that. But it, he took that, he took that charge very seriously. And I know that his dad did the same thing for him and it was really uh, formative to him. And I, I owe him a big debt for that because I developed a, a, not only a visual vocabulary in terms of my ability to make but an actual, like a verbal vocabulary. And, and that allowed me to be like a critic uh, of art and design at a, at a really early, yeah. at a really early age. And I think it just informed, I, I think it really helped accelerate my professional maturation in big ways because where a lot of other people were just learning the vocabulary, their freshman year uh, of design school, I kind of came into school with certainly not a mastery, but a working knowledge of that language. And it was really, it was really cool. Now, I, I, in terms of designers I admire, I tend to cast a really wide net. Uh, I tend to not draw a big distinction between inventors and designers. Mm. And uh, I think uh, Elon Musk is a, is a tremendous designer, yeah. uh, certainly a tremendous inventor. And I know it's uh, pretty trendy to like, you know, be on the Elon bandwagon, but doggone it. Holy crap. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, you know, geez Louise. Um, Browning, who was a very famous firearms designer. Again, I know that's not in vogue, you know, to talk about, you know, firearms necessarily in design podcasts. But um, when you think about the uh, everything he put his mind to and the stickiness uh, and impact, for better or worse, of many of his innovations, I think it's remarkable. And I think it's important to cast a really wide net when thinking about design heroes and what constitutes design. And, you know, it's easy, like for my generation, most people are like, uh, David Carson and 
you know, Michael <laughs> Beirut. And, you know, I mean, like there's this, you know, Canon, you know, like you had to have designed a logo for one of the big television networks and, you know, right. or some coffee mugs or whatever. But I, I like the idea of like, uh, you know, I mean, Coco Chanel, you know, I think people in fashion, people in manufacturing don't get a lot of love outside of their particular industries when it comes to design. And I think it's like tragic. It doesn't make any sense to me at all because uh, their work in many ways is like the most durable, highest impact, most culturally formative design that we're surrounded by. Yeah, that's a great point. We haven't had any uh, fashion designers on the show yet. So we can fix that. We can. We have a we have a tremendous burgeoning fashion community in Indianapolis as Indeed. well. So you've yeah. got plenty of people to talk to there. It's a great point. Noted. So obviously the theme of the show is obsessed with design. It's always fun when people use the obsessed word prior to being prompting, but um which we talked a little bit at the top of the show to you just sort of threw out some things you were obsessed with. So definitely appreciated that. So, but what would you say that you are most obsessed with right now? These are, these are just such terrific questions. I, it's a tough one because I'm an obsessive person and I tend to, um, can I just answer the question differently? Sure. Okay. So I tend to get very, very interested in, far-reaching topics for very intense but compressed periods of time. So it's, and, 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 you know, at best, I think it makes me kind of well-rounded and kind of fun at a cocktail party. Uh, at worst, it probably feeds some kind of like professional schizophrenia, but you know, I, I'm very into uh, DIY in general. Mm -hmm. um, I feel, uh, again, this is kind of in vogue, but I feel like given the digital world we live in, you have to be like incredibly intentional about getting your hands dirty. And uh, so I am really passionate about gardening. I am really passionate about, uh, I'm a very avid outdoorsman, so um uh, bullets and hooks, as I call it. So hunting and fishing. I keep bees. Um, you know, I like to fool around with, you know, slingshots. I mean, you know, anything basically that like a 14 year old boy would be into, um, <laughs> uh, I'm really, I'm really into. And so, um, I kind of go through these phases where I'll go very deep on something and it's not just stuff like that. It could be anything. It could be a particular um, movement. It could be a specific author. It could be Saki. It, you know, you name it, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I will usually like burn out. So I'll usually like go hard at one of these things and I'll be like, I never want to see that again, right? I'm done. Like, you know, and like, and maybe I had to go like buy some tools or whatever for it. And those are like, they're going on Craigslist, right? Because I'm over <laughs> it. But then like one out of every three or four of those things will stick. And that's the coolest thing, you know? Um, you know, the beekeeping, the gardening, um, the, uh, the kind of outdoor pursuits have all stuck for very, very long periods of time. And, and others, others haven't. You know, I, I taught myself, I started teaching myself how to weld a couple of years ago. And uh, that's, a, like, that's a great example. You know, I, 
did not know how to do it. I was always fascinated by the idea that you like could stick two pieces right. of metal together <laughs> and they would stay attached. And um, so I, I bought a like the crappiest welder money can buy for anyone who's interested. Uh, it's a flux core uh, welder from Harbor Freight Tools. If, if you haven't checked out Harbor Freight's website in a while, you got to check it out. It's amazing. They sell like incredibly inexpensive, incredibly crappy tools. But but they're like just good enough that you can like develop a base level of proficiency with yeah. it. I mean, it's it's really amazing. Yeah. So anyway, so that was like in terms of answering the the question, like what is it right now? I don't I don't I don't know if I have a very interesting answer for that. I think the more interesting response is that uh, I engage in a very high cycle rate of experimenting with with. Oh, I know what it is. I know what it is. All right. Um, and this is another like terribly in vogue one, but I have, I have just gotten interested in exercise. So like literally for the last 10 years, I've essentially, I've had the benefit of a really big motor and fast metabolism, but even that, like the, the piston rings are wearing out on that motor and it's just, it's not good people. I wasn't feeling good about myself when I was looking in the mirror. Um, so a few months ago I started getting into exercise and again, it's been cool to totally, kind of nerd out on what's the latest and greatest, like what are the trends, what are the hacks? You know, the really cool people call it body hacking. I haven't gotten to that level. I, I haven't leveled up to that point yet. Yeah. Um, but figuring out, you know, how do you build systems that are really efficient into your life that allow you to achieve kind of some very specific physiological goals? And I've started, I've started doing that. Although I blew it up last night. I was telling the folks at the office today, I came home last night. And my wife, who said we're going to start Whole30 on March 1, has begun to experiment with Whole30 like menu items. We're like, we don't uh, want to uh -huh. just fall into this, right? right? So for like breakfast, I had like sautéed spinach and a poached egg. And then for lunch, I had a salad. And then I come home to this. And honey, I'm sorry if you're listening to this, but it's pretty like banal chicken dish. You know, it had <laughs> right. some beets in it. It was, it was rather disappointing. Um, I was just hungry when it was all over <laughs> with. And I looked at my wife and uh, we're standing around and, and I said, I'm taking the kids to Cold Stone Creamery. And I loaded everybody up <laughs> like under the auspices of treating the kids, but I just needed some calories. Uh, and so we drove, we drove like at nine o'clock at night, we drove in the middle of winter, mind you, in Indianapolis <laughs> and, and just gorged, gorged on ice cream. So anyway. Beautiful. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so do you think this, uh, this whole 30 thing sounds like it's going to work out great? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I can be disciplined though. I just, the, the problem was she used the term experimenting with, which means that there's no guardrails, right. Right? right? If I, yeah. if I break from that, I'm not like, you know, I think it's more when like it's here, try this. And yeah, then, when that, it's official. Well, that wasn't meant to be a meal. When it's official, I'll be, I'll be on the straight and narrow, I promise. Excellent. And report back. So any, any dream projects on your radar, anything that you've, yet to tackle that you'd still love to do? Yeah. I mean, there's lots of stuff I, I haven't done that I still love to do. I mean, in general, most people though were thinking about like their dream job and that mission accomplished on that one. I yeah, mean, cool. it's, if you think about, if you, if you went and like talked to a designer who was kind of interested in finance and loved startups and, but was also kind of like had a consulting mindset and, you know, you take all that kind of stuff and you're like, what's a dream what would a perfect job look like? They would describe something that looks vaguely like high alpha, which is right. a 
which is, you know, a big sandbox that's really well funded where your um, playdate partners are all smarter than you and uh, you've got a lot of moment. I mean, we just get to, I mean, think about it, you know? I yeah, mean, we get to like killer. come up with ideas, wrap businesses around them. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, we talk about this too from time to time, usually not when it's being recorded, but there's a lot of pressure with it as well. I mean, we raised an, ex- an extraordinary amount of money uh, largely from people we know and like very, very much. Yeah. Um, and there's a clock that's ticking backwards. And uh, I hate to say we're on the hook, you know, because I don't think there's debtor's prison in America anymore. But we take our responsibility, kind of the obligation we have to our limited partners very, very seriously. And not a day goes by uh, where we don't go through our KPIs and and stare at that, not with disbelief, but with... Uh, a certitude that there is still much work to be done um, before this can be called an unqualified success. You know, in terms of what's, you know, next, I think I'm going to be doing this for a while. I have, um, I'm really interested in hospitality. And I think that uh, in the intersection of design and hospitality, and today there's great examples of that intersection in the aesthetics of hotels and resorts and things of that nature. I think there's a big opportunity to bring service design to bear on much more immersive experiential hospitality experiences. Mm-hmm. And and I think if like I had if I have like a pet project for when I retire, I I want to do something in that in that regard, specifically kind of bringing families together um, to experience really uh, rich outdoor experiences mm, interesting um in a in a very five-star context but one that's focused on like learning and stretching spiritually and physically and i cool. think i don't know if there's like if that's a good business uh but it's something that i i think about when i think about the future i think about that a lot very nice well before we let you go maybe you could share with us either your favorite piece of advice that you feel like you've ever received or maybe some of your favorite words of wisdom to pass along to uh, these baby companies as they're leaving the nest. Hmm. You've got to be pleased at how seriously I'm taking these I, questions. I am I quite mean, pleased. I feel, a, I feel pleased. there's a lot of, uh, I feel there's like a lot on the line here. Um, I feel like it adds, adds a layer of drama. Uh, you know, I and it's funny because obviously, like half of my job is, to, is literally dispensing tactical advice, you know, and and I have lots of like one-offs. Um, but one, all right, I'd say okay, I'd say there are two. There are two character traits that I believe can be cultivated. And um, that are essential to living a contented, successful, outsized life. And they are being predisposed toward optimism and cultivating, really indulging your sense of curiosity. So the intersection uh, of believing 
uh, and I call it kind of pragmatic optimism, right? But but believing that good stuff's going to happen and orienting yourself toward that and then putting yourself in a position where you're constantly learning. I mean, again, like what a snoozer answer if you kind of break it down into its component parts because everyone says you should be a self-learner and, you know, the power of positivity. But I mean, the reality is when I look at what has driven if I strip everything else away, what are the commonalities between the most successful people I know? They are like insanely curious, driven learners. I mean, they just are. They just don't stop consuming. Yeah. Um, and they and they get hip and and and, and you kind of start life that way, like innately. But the sooner you realize, oh my gosh, this is part of the secret. You know, and you start treating it like exercise or diet or anything else, and you start engineering that into your life, you see kind of the the vector of people's kind of ascent changes dramatically. The other thing is around optimism is just negative people just don't win. And I don't know how else to put it. I mean, it's not a very scientific uh, exposition, <laughs> but it's the reality. And, and, uh, for anyone who's ever heard, like heard me present or or uh, speak or, or heard me interviewed, you've probably heard me share this next aside. But I'm gonna do it again. I do it all the time, but I'm gonna do it again because I just love it. Which is uh, the power. There was an article written in a business publication a few years ago that dealt with the power of optimism or the role of optimism on a country's economic vitality. And as part of that interview. They referenced a study that uh, some scientists had conducted. Uh, in, in the short version, is he basically looked at a group of people who self-identified as pessimists and a group who self-identified as optimists, and um, he discovered some very interesting things. So he gave them a three-dimensional puzzle and he asked them uh, two questions: Will you be able to solve this puzzle? And if they answered, yeah. If they answered no, they went into one group. If they answered yes, they went into another group. If they went into the yes group, he then said, how long will it take? And, and it turns out that I thought the, the results were very enlightening. So, and this will be rhetorical since I can't hear anyone answering my questions. But <laughs> the group that most accurately predicted their ability to complete the puzzle by far and away was the pessimists. Which struck me as odd. I thought for sure it would be the optimists, yeah. right? But then the question of how long will it take, the accuracy, how close were they in terms of estimating the amount of effort it would take to be able to complete the puzzle? Do you know, can you, do you have any sense of who it was? No. Okay. You didn't fall into my trap. It was also the pessimists. <laughs> so the pessimists were much more accurate in determining their ability to complete the tasks and they were much more accurate in being able to determine how long it would take, right? So they not only answered no to begin with, but then they were able to correctly surmise how hard it was going to be. Yeah, well, no, these were it. the people, these were the pessimists who said, yes, I can do it. Okay, yes, okay. okay. Yeah, got I can it. do it, got it and got it'll it. take me two hours, right? Okay, now the third data point here, though, and this is the most interesting one, is which group do you think was the most successful in actually completing the damn thing? That was the optimists. So the optimists were way off base in determining, you know, the <laughs> likelihood they'd complete it. They were way off base in determining how long it would take. But at the end of the day, in the final accounting, they were the most successful at actually getting the job done. And that's because 
I believe that optimism is a form of delusion. And that in and, and, and that's just why being an optimist is so important when it comes to doing big, hard things. If you knew how hard in reality it was gonna be, if you knew how long it was gonna take, or how many second mortgages it was gonna require, you wouldn't start it. You need a healthy dose, and it's gotta be practical or pragmatic. You can't be like on another planet, but okay. you need to be somewhere between slightly and moderately diluted in order to do many big, many important things. And I believe that an optimism is like a critical input for entrepreneurship. And I think it can be cultivated. And the surest way to cultivate it is to hang out with optimists, right? Uh, and, and they're pretty easy to spot. Or maybe more specifically, pessimists are pretty easy to spot. Yeah. Um, it is so damaging to your psyche, to your family, to your business prospects to be surrounded by negative people, to be surrounded by pessimistic people. You've got to be, I, I want realists and I want people who will tell me the hard truth. Um, that's why I got married. I bring it. You know what I mean? But you got to have a positive orientation. You got to have an optimistic orientation. And and if, and this is where it gets very Dr. Phyllis here, okay? But uh, if, if, if you if you're working with people, I, I'm going to stay out of your personal lives for a minute here because I'm also a big proponent of commitment. All right, so just because you're married to a pessimistic person, I'm not telling you to, to leave them. I'm telling you to to help them. But but in a professional context, um, you got to get away from those people. You got to get them out of your. I don't go so far as so you just got to get them out of your business. Uh, if you have employees that have that toxic um, kind of pessimistic vibe, get rid of them tomorrow. Don't wait till next Friday. Don't think that your performance plan is going to turn it around. It's not going to change. The best thing you could do for that person is the best thing you could do for your business, which is hasten their exit um, and, and replace that with somebody with an op optimistic bearing. And, and again, it sounds, it sounds flaky. And I'm, I'm a dude who's not prone to kind of off-the-cuff flaky commentary, but this is an area where I embrace it because I think it's just spot on. So that's my advice. Cultivate um, your appetite for and indulge your appetite for curiosity and cultivate optimism and specifically by surrounding yourself with encouraging people. Love it. I get a uh, question all the time from, from young uh, prospective employees and they say, you know, were you freaked out and start your own business? Or were you scared? Were you worried? And no, I didn't, I didn't have were, any idea how hard this exactly. was going to be. I was at that healthy level of optimistic delusion. So I can, I can absolutely relate to that. And everybody should be like us, right? So that's, that's no, why, And that's the thing that is advice. certainly not everyone should be like <laughs> us, but it is, it is such a true statement. I mean, well, you know, part of my job is, you know, we were joking about you know, judging horse flesh, but I, I meet with a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, and one of my roles is to figure out are these people that would would be ideal partners for High Alpha. And there's this specific archetype where it's a really, really smart person. They're really pedigreed. They, you know, got their MBA from Chicago or Harvard or what have you. They've got a tremendous resume, um, but they 
you can see it in their eyes. You know what I mean? Like they're constantly doing the math. You know they're going home at night and firing up an Excel spreadsheet and there's a pro column and a con column and they are just <laughs> looking and they're working with me, man. They're trying to figure out how to get to 51% pro. Um, but, you know, over the course of several conversations, it just kind of gets teased out, right? That, mm-hmm. I mean, th- to them, the decision is a math problem and they're and and they're having to... They're, they're making some pessimistic assumptions or some pessimistic inputs going into their calculus. Yeah. Um, and, and those people very often go on to do tremendous, amazing things and are like phenomenal number twos and do a great job at watching the delusional number ones back and making sure there's enough money in the bank account to meet payroll. And, and those people are absolutely critical to building big, important, durable businesses and changing the world. Hard stop. No question about it. Thank goodness they exist. But in a vacuum, very rarely do those people bring about big-time disruption, big-time innovation. Um, their pragmatism is a rev- it's a, like a governor on their motor. Um, and, and the optimist is someone who's got the same size motor, but the governor is not there. So they can operate in the red line for much, much longer periods of time. Love I it. just came up with that metaphor on the spot, but I like I, I probably that may may make an appearance again at some point. <laughs> well, in that case, we should quit while we're ahead. Um, before we let you go, tell everybody who's listening where they can track you down online and learn more about Studio Science and High Alpha. Sure, you can find out more about High Alpha at highalpha.com, which is spelled just the way it sounds. Same is true for studioscience.com. And uh, the easiest way to get a hold of me really is Twitter. And I can be followed at Christian with a K, Indy. So K R I S T I A N I N D Y. Excellent. Well, Christian, I appreciate you taking some time to catch up today. Might have to have you back on for a for a part two here sometime in the next year. This was, so. uh, it was terrific. Thanks for including me. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here and thank you for being obsessed with design. Okay, guys, that is episode number 55 in the books. Do me a favor this week and check out our friend Doug Carr's marketing tech blog. And while you're at it, be sure you're subscribed to the Obsessed Show and Marketing Tech Podcast on iTunes. Give us a tweet this week and let us know who you think we should interview next. I'm at Josh Miles. You can also tweet to at Obsessed Show. Also, if you want to get my thoughts on brand strategy delivered to your inbox, visit milesherndon.com slash josh to subscribe. Obsessed with Design is a product of the Design Obsessed team at Miles Herndon, a branding agency located on the 13th floor of beautiful Circle Tower in downtown Indianapolis. Our intro music is Matchbox Girl by Cassie Joe, and our show is always edited by Jen Eds at the Brassy Broadcast Company. Visit BrassyBroad.com to learn more. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.